All right, well, our last time together last week, we looked at Paul trying to handle conflict within the church. We have these two ladies within the church in verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche, who had a little bit of a, a conflict going on in their relationship. And these are ladies who had served the Lord. They had furthered the gospel along with Paul. And so he shows us the importance of our relationships with one another. Uh, the fact that if we do have issues in relationships that those things can turn into bigger issues. And so we need to address those things. And notice how he addressed them. He just said, I want you to have the same mind in the Lord. That was his admonition. And I think that's an admonition that all of us, when we have any kind of interpersonal relationship issues, we can think of that. Hopefully the Spirit of God will bring that to our minds. Let us have the same mind in the Lord. If we have the same mind in the Lord, we'll work through things. We'll be willing to yield one to another. We'll be willing to die, if you will, so that peace could ensue. And we saw also that that was rooted and grounded in the nature of God. God is a God of peace. He's at peace in and of himself, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no conflict there. There never has been, there never will be. Uh, and so, therefore, because God is one, he desires us to be one. That's his prayer for us. That was Jesus' prayer for us. Um, and so also we saw that we need to set our minds, therefore, on Christ, to have his mind. And that is a theme of this book in Philippians. If we have the mind of Christ, everything else will take care of itself. And I think as we open up the word of God, that's how we obtain his mind, isn't it? It's not some mysticism where we try to go in a closet and magically his mind appears before us. No, the more we get into the word, the more the word gets into us. And the more his word is in us, the more we begin to think like what his word says. And so that's my goal. That's hopefully all of our goal as Christians. I want the mind of Christ. I want to see things and think the way that he thinks. If, if you want a classic example, read the Gospels. And as Jesus is encountering people, ask yourself the question, how would I respond here? I know for me, nine times out of ten, my response would be very different from his. And that shows me I have a long way to go. I'm not thinking the way that he thinks so often. And so we begin in verse 4 this morning with a phrase that many of us are already familiar with if you've gone through the book of Philippians with us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. This is not the first time Paul has said this to us, is it? In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, we saw that he said it exactly the same way. Rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And so he must feel that we need to be reminded again of this. That it's something that's very important. He uses repetition as a way to show us this is something we constantly need to keep at the forefront of our minds. Because left to ourselves, is this our default, re default response? Do you naturally rejoice in the Lord without being reminded to do so sometimes? Or do you need that reminder? Is it like the cell phone that sends you that reminder that you have an appointment? Uh, sometimes we need to be reminded of the same things over and over again. It's safe for us. And remember, when Paul is writing for us to rejoice in the Lord, is he at the Caribbean on a cruise? No, he's actually in chains in Rome waiting his trial. He doesn't know what's awaiting him. He may be put to death for all he knows. And so he's in chains, he's in prison, he is on house arrest, writing this letter, reminding these believers in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. And this is significant because they may be facing for future persecution themselves. Remember, they are declaring Jesus Christ is Lord, as opposed to Caesar, 
who the rest of the universe right now at the time of this letter is saying is Lord. And so there's a conflict there. And so he tells us this, but notice it's also a command. He's not making a pleasant suggestion here. He's not saying, well, I sure hope that you rejoice in the Lord. That would be pleasant. No, he's commanding us rejoice in the Lord. Is he talking about us forcing a fake, fake smile? Or gritting your teeth and just smiling, you know, when someone says something to you and you're trying everything you can just to get that grin on your face? Is he telling us to do that? Is he telling us to force or fake our emotions? No. The Lord would never call us to do that because that would be a lie. And the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, right? So he would never cause us to lie about our true condition. So it's not faking a smile and it's not forcing an, emo an emotion, but rather it's a choice that we actually make. Do you realize rejoicing is a choice? It's something that I can choose to do or I can choose not to do. And sometimes for me, I know it's a lot more convenient to just throw a little pity party for Luke. Oh, oh, oh poor Luke. You know, and I can, f I can uh, put the attention onto me instead of rejoicing in the Lord, but that's a decision that we all make. Now the question though is, what is the object of our rejoicing? Is it your circumstances? Does the Lord here say rejoice in your circumstances always? And again, I say rejoice. No, right? In fact, there are some circumstances that it would be kind of weird to rejoice about the actual circumstance. Rather, we see the object of our rejoicing is in the Lord. We rejoice in him. And in fact, sometimes our circumstances go a certain way that all we have is the Lord. And we find out that he is sufficient, that we maybe see more clearly that he is worthy of our joy. He's worthy of our response and our worship. And so the last thing I want us to think about, what is the condition of our rejoicing in him? How often does he tell us to rejoice in the Lord? Sometimes? A few times? A couple times a day? Now notice the language. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so in every situation... In every season of life. Doesn't life have seasons? Some seasons are good. Some seasons are not so good. There's hills. There's valleys. There's everything in between. And yet, no matter what season I find myself in, he calls me to rejoice in him. Now, if you're like me, this is not something that comes natural. Um, I think something that I have to think about myself is how is it possible to always rejoice in the Lord? How can this be? How can I do this consistently on a daily basis? And to answer that question, I think it's helpful for us to think of the opposite situation first. And this is a real, real world situation that unfortunately we find more and more children in today. Did you, do you realize that uncertainty tends to lead to fear and anxiety? You ever face something uncertain? Isn't it true that that uncertainty can just breed that anxiety and that fear within us? That, that we don't know what's going to happen. And when we look at children who grow up in homes without stability, without protection, without consistency, without consistent love and support, these children often experience an intense feeling of fear that can rob them of joy. And isn't that true of any relationship? If you're in a relationship where there's not stability, there's not trust, there's not consistency, doesn't that rob you of that joy that you usually want to experience within that relationship? Because there's, there's nothing stable, there's nothing holding you down. And a lack of consistent love and stability leads to fear, anxiety, and it no doubt stunts growth. Now on the flip side, 
when we see there is that stability, there's a certain freedom that can be experienced when a child grows up in an atmosphere where there's stability and unchanging love, when there is no doubt that this child is loved, valued, or protected, this child finds wonderful freedom to rejoice. Why? Because without stability, there's no trust. And without trust, there's no joy. And so going back to that question, how is it possible practically for us to rejoice in the Lord always? I think the answer is actually pretty simple. It's that we serve a God who does not change, even though our circumstances do. Even though our friends, our family, our world, even our emotions may look at our circumstances and just say like Job's wife, curse God and die. Just curse them and die. Things are so bad right now, there's no possible way that you could possibly rejoice in the Lord. We understand his nature as believers. We understand he does not change. And we need to remind ourselves that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love remains the same, right? Nothing can separate us from his love. And his word is always true. It's always sure. His promises are always certain. And he's promised us never to leave us nor forsake us, hasn't he? Isn't that an awesome promise? Maybe you've been abandoned by people who should have been there for you in your life. Well, the Lord has promised to never leave you, never forsake you. And you know what's good news? He cannot lie. He can't lie. So when he makes a promise, guess what? You can take that promise to the bank. It's 100% true all of the time. Why? Because his character is unchangeable, immutable, and unshakable. He is 100% dependent and trustworthy 100% of the time. And therefore, in his character, we find freedom to rejoice always. That's why it says rejoice what? In the Lord Always, because he's always 100% true and trustworthy. We rejoice in him. And it's why it's so important as believers that we grow to understand who he is, right? How can you rejoice in someone that you don't know? It's kind of hard. So I need to grow in my knowledge of God. I need to understand who he is, learning his attributes. If you want a really good book to learn the attributes of God, A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy where he goes over the different attributes of God, and it's a very practical way of understanding those attributes, his character. If you want another way, who is it that, when we look to this person, we see God, the face of God. Who is it that we look to? If you want to know what God is like, who do you look to? You look to Jesus, right? He's the express image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. So if you want to know the attributes of God, if you want to see the greatest example of what God is like, Open your Bible, go to those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read those Gospel accounts, and you will see God's character in the person of Jesus Christ. And the more you feed on the Word of God, the more you feed on the Word that points you ultimately to Jesus, the more you will begin to rejoice in the Lord. It'll just be natural. In fact, do you realize that the Lord wants us to rejoice because in and of himself he rejoices? The psalmist said this, he said, Therefore God, speaking of Jesus, Therefore God, your God, meaning the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Isn't that neat? You know, sometimes we, we think of these pictures of Jesus or the little cardboard cutouts of him. And for wh whatever reason, he always looks so serious. 
but he was full of joy. What was it that attracted people to him? People who aren't full of joy are not very attractive, are they? But there was something about him that even sinners were drawn to him. Did he speak truth? Yes. Did he withhold truth? No. He called it like it is. But I believe he had this unending joy within him that just being in his presence must have been so special. Just sitting with Jesus. He is the source of joy. And in his presence, we're told, is fullness of joy. And so if your Christian faith is a joyless experience, please understand something. There's something wrong with your beliefs. There's something wrong with your doctrine. If you, maybe you started out rejoicing in the Lord early on in your Christian days, and then you got real heady into Christian theology, right? And all of a sudden you've arrived at this great Christian understanding of the deep things of Scripture, but you lack joy. You're missing something that the Apostle Paul is writing to us very clearly about. So I would challenge you when you listen to people talk about doctrine. Doctrine is important. It's, it's extremely important. But if it robs someone of joy, there's something just a little bit skewed in that philosophy or in that doctrine. And so we have a faith that is deep-seated joy rooted and grounded in Christ. And I believe our joy is one of the greatest attractions we as believers can offer to, a wor to this world, right? Now remember earlier on in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 14, we were told, do all things without complaining and disputing. That was a difficult word for us. Do all things without complaining and disputing. But here Paul gives us the flip side, the, the same coin, but the other side of that. It's not just about not doing, right? Christianity is not about nots. Don't think it's just a bunch of rules. Don't do this, don't do that. Don't say this, don't say that. No, Christianity is about embracing God. And it's about doing, it's about rejoicing, right? It's not just about not complaining. The Lord doesn't want us to just not complain. No, he wants to fill our hearts and our mouths with joy. And so it's one of the greatest attractions that we can offer to people is our joy. And you know, I got a great experience this past week. Jordan mentioned to you guys we had our court uh, date for Broken Chains. And, you know, we had prayed here at the church before we went to the courthouse. And there, there's a bunch of us guys and, uh, and Megan. I, I forgot. We did have one female with us. Um, and so we get into the courthouse and you're greeted there by the metal detector. Very welcoming environment. Um, and, you know, everyone's so serious in a courthouse. And then all of a sudden we're walking back towards in, in, in the first floor and there's Connie. And Connie is just so full of the joy of the Lord. And she, she's excited to see us. She's excited about what God's doing through Broken Chains. In fact, she actually comes out and she prays for us. Which I'm thinking, wow, I don't know how many places you can do this. But what an encouragement it was to just see someone so full of the joy of the Lord in a very joyless environment. It's contagious. It's attractive. And you know what? It points people to the source of joy. Who, is, who do we rejoice in? The Lord. So our joy is like an arrow pointing to the one who gives us that joy. In fact, in the, in the epistles, we're told to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You ever think about that? Now, if you listen to me sing, I don't know if you're going to be full of joy. But do you ever notice when someone's singing something, and it could be secular or it could be, you know, Christian, and, and they're, maybe they're humming a tune, and then all of a sudden you realize you start to hum that tune or you start to sing that song yourself. And then they hear you singing it. 
And they're like, wow, that's weird. I was just singing that myself, not realizing they were even maybe verbalizing it. See, it, the point is it spreads. When you're around people who are rejoicing, when you're around people who are singing unto the Lord, just praising him, there's something that happens. It just spreads to us. Of course, negativity does the same thing, right? You're around people who are negative, who just speak negativity constantly. And pretty soon, it's, it's hard. You, you start thinking negatively. And so it can work both ways. But it does something to others. It points them to the Lord, the source of all true and lasting joy. And this church in Philippi should have known something about joy because it was birthed in the midst of suffering and praise. Remember when Paul was imprisoned in Philippi and there at the midnight hour, him and Silas praising the Lord in the midst of their chains. The earthquake takes place, the jail cells are open, the jailer's ready to kill himself, and then all of a sudden they share the gospel with him and he gets saved, his whole household gets saved. And so this jailer, and I don't know what happened, by the way, I don't know what happened to those other people in jail that night. It doesn't say. We know they didn't leave when the, jo when the doors were open. That's what we do know. So did they believe? I don't know. But the joy of the Lord actually sprouted beautiful fruit that, that became this church in Philippi in Paul's life. And so verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now when he says, let your gentleness be known, the word gentleness means a gentle forbearance with others. And this is very important when you look at the context of this letter, these Christians probably would be facing persecution. If nothing else, verbal harassment. And how important is it when people are coming at you with attitude, when people are coming at you sideways, to have the right attitude in mind, ultimately the mind of Christ, to be forbearing, Right? 1 Peter 2, 23 says this of Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so when we see this attitude of gentleness, again, we're talking about the attitude of Jesus. We're talking about the mind of Jesus in the face of opposition. As he's hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, I don't know about you. When I listen to him say that, it looks to me like the people know what they're doing. They're crucifying him. They're spitting at him. They're pulling his beard out. They're gambling for his clothing. They're mocking him. And his heart is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's his heart. And in the midst of his suffering, he's in total control. Isn't that amazing? Total control. He didn't lose it. You know, sometimes we can go for a while, you're going through difficult circumstances, and you're just taking it, and you're taking it, and you're taking it, and then all of a sudden, boom! It just explodes. But that's not Jesus. In fact, even when we see in the scriptures God's wrath, you realize God's wrath is so much unlike our wrath. Our wrath, yeah, you might for, be forbearing for a season, and then again you let someone have it. His wrath is steady and patient. If you don't believe me, how about when the children of Israel go into Egypt until he actually judges the people in the land of Canaan? Over 400 years, he was patient. Over 400 years, 
before his wrath would be poured out. And for me, 400 seconds is pretty good sometimes. And the point is, this is something that the Spirit of God has to do in our life. Because we are not this by nature. Number one, we don't rejoice in the Lord by nature. Number two, our gentleness is not something that comes natural. It's not just the natural motherly gentleness. This is something that is spirit-driven in our lives. Always in control. Bearing with others. Lightfoot said, bear with others now that God may bear with you then. Now notice there's this little sentence within verse 5. At the end of it, the Lord is at hand. And there's questions about this sentence. There's two questions primarily. Number one, what verse does this go with? You realize the verses in your Bible were put there so that we can navigate the Bible more easily, right? They were not in the original manuscripts. We've added them so that we can turn to Philippians chapter 3 or whatever. So what does this Lord at hand, does it go with... I want you to be gentle, let it be known to all men, the Lord's at hand. Or does it go with verse 6, be anxious for nothing? That's the first question. The second question is, what does it mean? Does it mean that the Lord's return is soon, the Lord is at hand? Or does it mean that the Lord is present among you, the Lord is at hand? Now, first off, I think the Holy Spirit, it amazes me as I look at how he, where he places his wording. And I believe that it's a beautiful connector between verse 5 and verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be made known to all people. What? The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Why? The Lord is at hand. So I believe it's a connector between those two verses. I don't think you have to pick one or the other. But number two, what does it mean? Now, we've seen in this letter of Philippians, Paul has addressed the Lord's coming on multiple occasions. And it's supposed to impact the way that we live our lives. And so on one hand, he isn't at hand. He's coming. And we're waiting for his coming. We long for his coming. On the other side, though, isn't it equally true that he's present with us in the midst of our circumstances? No matter what those circumstances are, you can say to your brother or sister, the Lord's at hand. He's with you. He's promised to never leave you. He's promised to never forsake you. And so regardless of how we interpret it, there's truth. He's at hand. He's coming, and he's with us. The now and the not yet, right? And we find ourselves in this, this place in between these two things. And so light of his being with us, in light of his near return, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I'm curious, how many here have taken this promise to the bank and held on to this promise in a season of maybe difficulty, of uncertainty, of trials? This is one of those go-to verses for me, to be honest with you. Because when I know in my flesh, anxiety is one of those things that I'm prone to. I, I, I tend to worry. And most times, most of the things we worry about, they never do really happen, do they? But this anxiety is something that we, we face. And notice also in verse 6, just like rejoicing in the Lord, this is a command, isn't it? Be anxious for nothing. He's not making a suggestion here. Be anxious for nothing. And in the Greek, that word nothing, it means nothing. Just to make sure that we understand what he's saying. Now, one thing about anxiety, we, we realize that it is closely related to fear and anger. Why? 
because it's rooted in uncertainty. See, when we feel anxious, it's because we feel out of control. We're in a circumstance, we're in a situation where we can't call the shots. We can't make things happen. And if you're a control freak, that's a very difficult place to be. If you like to map out everything in your life, God has a way of unmapping things, doesn't he? And he has a way of stripping things away from us so that we feel like we're out of control. And so we're told here not to be anxious. Now, does he tell us to just suck it up and pull up your bootstraps and don't be anxious? If that was the case, we'd be in trouble or I would be in trouble. And I, you know, I find myself, this is, this is sometimes my counsel to people is, you know, just, just work through it, plow through it, especially my wife. You know, she says something to me and she's looking for a word of encouragement. And I just kind of give her the manly, oh, you know, just plow through, honey. And I'm not that encouraging sometimes. I think, guys, we struggle with that, don't we? The language to use. Or am I the only guy here that struggles with that? I, I do want to note, though, just like rejoicing is not our natural response, I want to note that not being anxious is not our default response. Rather, being anxious is our default response. Did anyone ever have to teach you to be anxious? Did anyone ever have to tell you in a classroom, this is how you be anxious? You become fearful, you become doubting, your heart starts to race, you start to sweat. No, right? Anxiety is something that happens naturally to us. No one has to teach us it. And we allow what is going on around us to impact what is going on within us. And that which is out of control outside of us causes us to lose control of our thoughts and our emotions on the inside. And this ultimately leads to poor choices and poor actions. And if you allow this to go long enough, it's a cycle that will continue to go on and on and on and on. Anxiety always leads to poor choices if it's not dealt with. And I'm thankful as you look at verse 6. There's a word that I'm so thankful for, and that's the word but. Be anxious for nothing but. And that word but, many times in Scripture, it's, it's like our Savior. It's like saving the day because it's pointing us to what God's going to do, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. But praise God, you know, God sent His Son. And so we, that word but now we see here, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Notice that in three different ways he's telling us to pray, isn't he? He's telling us prayer, supplication, and requests. And it's not worth trying to differentiate what these words mean. They basically mean the same thing. He's telling us when you're faced with situations in life that typically will make you anxious, stop and pray. And that's a really good word for us. You can turn to the Lord. Notice it doesn't say, turn to your pastor, or turn to your spouse, or your best friend, or your priest. This is good news. Because in the New Testament, there's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. And what this is telling me is, you have direct access to the throne room of God. And when life happens and circumstances arise where you feel out of control, you can turn to the one who is in control. And as a Christian, a born-again Christian, you have that free access to God's throne room. Isn't that awesome? Don't take that lightly. 
when you're praying sometimes, you know how we go through prayer and we just kind of pray because that's what we do? Or you wake up in the morning, you're exhausted, you're trying to keep your eyelids open, you know, because you know you need to pray? Remember who you're praying to. Remember that you're coming boldly to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us. And so instead of going to your default anxiety, and by the way, isn't it true that we all have a default of how we handle anxiety? How do you handle anxiety? What's your default? Is it to eat? Is it to become stressed out and lash out at people? Is it to drink or pick up a pill? I mean, you name it. There's a thousand different ways that we deal or cope with anxiety. What is your default way? That is your natural response. What God is showing us here is he's trying to change our response so that we go from turning to this every time we face anxiety to turning to him. We're praying. We're turning to the Lord. And I want to point out, too, that this verse is not some magical formula or a magical potion. Okay? It's not that you just quote this verse and all of a sudden anxiety goes away. You actually have to do what the verse says, right? See, you have to go through the verse to the Lord, and this verse tells you to pray. It says, don't be anxious for anything, but pray. And so it's a learned response. I believe this is the learned response of the early church. When you read the book of Acts, when they faced difficulties, what did the early church do? Did they have a committee? No, they prayed. Remember when they were forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus? What did they do? They got together and they prayed for more boldness to speak the name of Jesus. And the Spirit of God came upon them and they proclaimed the Word of God boldly. Or when Peter was in prison and he was waiting his death sentence. In fact, it looked like he was going to die the next day. What were they doing? They were praying. And he was released, right? An angel came and unlocked him. They didn't realize he was released. They thought it was a ghost. But they were praying. The early church understood the power of prayer in the midst of uncertainty. And that's what Paul's getting after us here. It's turning from that which is uncertain to him who is certain. He is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our strong tower. He knows your needs before you even ask. He knows how many hairs are on your head, right? I've made that easier for him. He knows everything about you. And he knows what you need at any given time. And therefore, turn to your Father in heaven. He has a banquet spread out before you. We saw this this week in Proverbs. He's prepared a banquet for us, a feast for us. And sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. What What a sad statement that is, right? You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have the peace that God wants to give you. Why? Because you're struggling in your own strength to make it happen. And he wants to give you his peace. And because of this outlook, we can experience an ongoing attitude of thanksgiving. And no joke, I don't plan these things. It's not because it's Thanksgiving weekend that we see that we're supposed to do this with thanksgiving. For believers, I don't believe it should be a one-time-a-year thing, right? It's not like, oh yeah, this, this day we're celebrating thanksgiving to the Lord. No, every day is a day of thanksgiving. Just like with Christmas and we're going to look at the incarnation. Isn't it true? Every day for the Christian is a day of incarnation for, of Christ. We, we celebrate the incarnation of God being made man. We celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday every single day. We don't celebrate it just once a year. No, everything revolves around those things as believers. And real quick, one last thing I just want to point out. It's not that God is going to just drop this 
peace into your, your heart. Like a, air, like a hot air balloon is coming down. All of a sudden, he drops peace into your heart. He's given you his spirit. And the fruit of the spirit is peace, joy, gentleness, right? These things that he's telling us here are fruit of his spirit in our life. He's not giving us so much peace. He's giving us himself. And as his spirit in us, we allow him to live in and through us, we experience this peace of God that he's getting at here. Now notice also, this covers everything because be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer supplication, right? There's, nothing, there's no category that this doesn't cover, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. But let's see the, the, what, what happens as we do this. What is the result of taking our cares before the Lord? Verse 7. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, right? Again, there's this peace of God that he gives us. I love what one commentator said. He said, God is the God of peace and he dwells in total shalom and gives such shalom to his people. I like that. He dwells in utter and total shalom. He is the God of peace. And he gives us his spirit. He gives us his peace. He gives us himself. It's an overflow of God in us. And it's a peace that surpasses our understanding, right? It's something that maybe before you would have been going crazy. And now all of a sudden he's giving you this grace, this peace to sustain you through the circumstance. And it's supernatural. And in fact, it actually teaches you that God's at work in your life. Because you realize, man... Five years ago, I would not have responded this way. Five minutes ago, I wouldn't have responded this way. Thank you, Lord, that you're at work in my life. Thank you that you're giving me the grace to sustain me in the midst of this situation. And you don't even know why. Notice also this piece guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guards, it's a military term. It means to form a garrison around and so this peace, it forms a garrison around your heart, around your mind. It doesn't allow those negative thoughts and emotions to take root and to, to ultimately di dictate how you're going to respond. It will not let those things in. It will not let the arrows of the enemy in that cause doubt. And it's replaced, it replaces those thoughts of anxiety with peace and trust in Christ Jesus. Now listen, we live in a world of chaos, don't we? We live in a world of outer chaos and we live in a world of inner chaos. There's wars and rumors of wars. In fact, we live in a, a day of nuclear, uh, nuclear warfare that one push button could lead to just unknown consequences. We live in a day where the news is pretty much always bad. Mass shootings and terrorism are common. Abuse and neglect. As Paul told Timothy, people are lovers of themselves. We see natural disasters occurring more frequently and in more intensity as time goes on. And the economy is definitely not certain, right? We live in a world that is without joy and depression rates are sky high. We live in a world that is full of anger and people are taking matters into their own hands because they have no one else to turn to. And we live in a world of anxiety where people are looking for comfort in all the wrong places. And people are trying to find relief in everything from substances to relationships to you know who knows what. We live in a world that is definitely looks out of control. And in the midst of such uncertain times, 
We have a God who is certain and who is always in control. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He's present with you and he's coming for you. And therefore rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness gentleness be made known to all people and be anxious for nothing. And I just want to close with this. In order to experience this peace of God, you know, so many people I think are searching for this peace, right? People are looking for this. But in order to experience the peace of God, do you realize you have to first experience peace with God? Because left to ourselves, we are at war with God. There's a war going on, and the greatest battle is not even necessarily between joy or anxiety or fear or emotions. The greatest battle is that there's sinful man and a holy God. And praise be to the Lord, even though we are all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God, we realize that God has a remedy for that, doesn't he? So that we can be at peace with God. And how did he do that? How did he make us at peace with himself? Because do you realize it's a matter of justice? God cannot just overlook sin. He cannot just say, don't worry about it. I forgive you. I'll for-, you know, it's not a big deal. He can't just wipe it away and say, no biggie. No, because he's a God of justice. So the question becomes, how can God be just and merciful at the same time? How can he do that? Because he can't just be merciful at the expense of his justice. Right? And the only answer I know under the sun is that God became man, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross in your place, in my place. And therefore God's wrath was poured out on him instead of being poured out on us. And therefore God can be just and merciful at the same time. It's the gospel. And until you understand the gospel, God becoming man, taking your place, dying in your place, resurrecting, praise God, in your place, until you embrace him, you cannot have peace with God and therefore you'll never have the peace of God. And so my question is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior this morning? Have you trusted in him as your refuge from sin and from God's wrath? Because either you will allow him to pay for your sin or you will pay for your sin in the future when he judges the world. Do you have peace with God this morning? If you have questions about that, we would love to sit down with you and answer any questions that you have. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trusting in him as you would a parachute when you're jumping off an airplane. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to have peace with God. And guess what? Now he'll give you his spirit. And his spirit wants to produce all these things we just read about in your life. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? All the good things that we're searching for in all the wrong places, his spirit will do in your heart and in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's a good word, Lord. It's a challenging word. (laughs) We don't find it natural to rejoice always. But would you help direct our hearts to you? Help us to rejoice in you, Lord. You don't tell us to rejoice foolishly in our circumstances. God, that would be foolish. But Lord, you point us to you who never changes. Lord, we can trust you. We can trust you with our eternal soul, Lord. We can trust you with our bodies. We can trust you with our families. We can trust you with our finances. We can trust you with everything because you are faithful. 
Because you do not change. You've promised to always be with us, to never leave us, never forsake us. Even in the midst of those circumstances that we are prone to be anxious with, Lord, you are with us. Thank you that you are our good shepherd. And you go before us and you go with us and behind us. Would you allow us to experience your joy and your peace and your gentleness? Would you live in and through us that when we come in contact, even with family members, Lord, it's Thanksgiving. And we, we are with some family maybe who are not that thankful this Thanksgiving. But God, I pray that you'd pour out your spirit on us, God, that we would be a witness for you and that we would be eternally thankful for what your son has done for us. God, we can never repay you. But we do offer the sacrifice of praise this morning. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.